The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Mark 16, 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be be to Christ. Well, good morning, everybody. Happy Easter. Uh, If we have not had a chance to meet, if you happen to be a guest with us this morning, perhaps my name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here. This is actually uh, the fifth uh, Christ Pres Easter service this morning uh, from three different locations. We also have congregations in the Music Row area as well as uh, in the Cool Springs Franklin area. So welcome to our Old Hickory location. And uh, it's my privilege to welcome you and to, to celebrate uh, Easter with you, whatever your perspective, wherever it is that you're coming from. And uh, you know, one of the things that we've been uh, announcing for the last couple of weeks is that today we are beginning uh, a new series that we're calling Doubting Christianity. Uh, and uh, we're, we're going to, for the next seven weeks, including this one, uh, examine uh, the seven core reasons for non-belief, uh, particularly among uh, modern people, and uh, specifically those who struggle with the claims of Christianity. And, um, you know, it's in your bulletin, the different topics that we're going to cover today. You know, the one we're going to uh, cover is the question, isn't Easter just a made-up fairy tale? Are we, are we here just kind of celebrating something like, uh, I don't know, the Cinderella story or, or you know, Mary had a little lamb or, or something like that. Uh, and, uh, and then next week, we're going to uh, address the question, with all of this suffering, how can God be good? Other subjects include, isn't Christianity too narrow-minded? Shouldn't everyone define their own truth? Isn't the Bible unreliable and outdated? Haven't Christians hurt a lot of people? And can a raffle God be loving? Or you could ask that in the reverse. Could a loving God possibly uh, be raffle? And um, so the question might be floating around there, why in the world, especially on a day like Easter, would we talk about doubt and, and, and the reasons for, for non-belief rather than reasons for belief? And uh, there are a lot of, uh, I guess, ways that we could answer that. But Uh, I suppose to summarize it, uh, this series is for two groups of people. One is for those who identify as followers of Jesus Christ, and uh, our hope will be to further fortify your faith, uh, enrich and enhance your confidence that that what you've given your life to 
uh, is something uh, worth giving your life to and also based on uh, some pretty solid things. Uh, and then the other group is those who might be exploring Christianity and who come into environments like this with an open mind. Uh, we want to uh, have a conversation uh, with you, and we want to uh, invite you to be part of this series. We want to invite you to push back. We want to invite you to say, hey, uh, you know, I hear you on this, but I don't hear you on this, and here's why. Uh, we want to open dialogue. And uh, the reason why we want to do this is because we believe that Christianity is an intellectually serious faith. It's an intellectually serious faith that takes intellectually serious people seriously, including their doubts. Uh, if you go through the, the gospel narratives or what Christians call the New Testament, you'll see that Jesus never dismisses people who come to Him with doubts, who come to Him with pushback, who come to Him with hang-ups. Never. He does not dismiss people. Instead, He engages them and moves toward them. And Jesus says that people who identify as His followers, the church, need to do the same, to always take seriously the hang-ups that people might have, or as one of the letters in the Bible says, to always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you, and do so with gentleness and respect. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the number one reason why people doubt, especially those who are science-minded, maybe part of the scientific community here in Nashville, Silicon Valley of healthcare, etc., miracles specifically the miracle that we do not see happen even at the best hospitals in the world right down the road ever. Dead people who've been dead for three days coming back to life. We just don't see that. And so, let's just take an honest and direct look at it, because as the Bible itself says, if the resurrection isn't true, if Jesus Christ did not literally, bodily, personally come back from three days of being dead and emerge back to life, if that did not happen, as the Bible itself says, Christians are the most in the world to be pitied among people. But if it did happen, then there is a hope here that changes everything. And so, what I want to do is engage two questions this morning. The first is, could it be true? And the second, if so, who should care? So first, could it be true? Um, what I want to do uh, to, uh, right now is, is to invite everyone in the room, including Christians, to suspend your belief system for a moment, to open your mind up all the way. You know, as G.K. Chesterton, the, the great British philosopher and thinker said, an open mind is a good thing to a point. Because the purpose of an open mind is very similar to the purpose of an open mouth, to eventually shut it on something solid. And so what I hope to do is to give you some solid reasons to consider shutting your mind, even as I invite you to open it right now. So there are three categories of thinkers, of thoughtful people who uh, will process claims like the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth, a man walking on water, a man turning water into wine at a, a wedding party, all of these things that, that the New Testament claims that Jesus did. There are three responses to that. 
And the first response is those who would say they fall categorically in the no column, uh, N-O, no, with respect to miracles. There's some very bright uh, uh, public intellectuals over the course of, of years who have arrived at this conclusion and who have declared themselves to be atheists, and, and yet whose contributions to the world of thought have been staggering. Some of these include Stephen Hawking, the great physicist, Anne Rand, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, uh, Jennifer Michael Hack, Peter Singer, Patricia Churchland, among many others. And all of them would agree with something that Mark Twain, the novelist, once said. Faith is believing what you know ain't true. So that's Mark Twain, and that is many, uh, you know, in the atheist world. And the critique is miracles. Miracles. I mean, virgin birth, walking on water, coming up from the dead after several days, scientifically implausible because as every thoughtful person knows, we live in a closed universe with very specific, very set laws. Gravity, it's there. Whether you acknowledge it or not, gravity is gravity and it's going to act like gravity. Death is death and it's going to act like death. Closed universe, squarely in the no column with respect to miracles. And then there's another column called the uncertain or the unsure column, and uh, the great astronomer Carl Sagan uh, put himself in that column. He said this, he said, I am not an atheist. An atheist is somebody who has compelling evidence that there is no Judeo-Christian God. I am not that wise. It's one of the smartest people who ever lived, saying I'm not wise enough to know for certain that there is no Judeo-Christian God but neither do I consider there to be anything approaching adequate evidence that such a God does exist. You just can't know. That's what Sagan said. And then there are, are public intellectuals and, and thinkers and, and, and so on who would put themselves squarely in the yes category to miracles and resurrection and Easter and, and so on. Writers like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and Marilyn Robinson and Flannery O'Connor, if you're from the South, Journalists like Chicago Tribune's celebrated journalist Lee Strobel or the New York Times' David Brooks and Ross Douthat. These are all people who believe in this stuff. Renowned scientists, groundbreaking scientists like Newton and Galileo and, and today Francis Collins of the Genome Project. Ivy League universities, every single one of them except for one was founded by Christian ministers and lay people, every one of them. Many of you went to Harvard. And you know that when you walk around Harvard's campus and you look on the door, over the door of just about every single academic building, you've got Scripture from Old and New Testaments etched on the top because the, the, the founders were believers in Jesus Christ and in the resurrection. You go to Princeton University and you'll see that there's a cemetery right in the middle of the Princeton campus and buried there are renowned theologians and ministers, many of whom were part of the founding of Princeton University, including Jonathan Edwards great Puritan minister and theologian whose works are, are kept now in, in the archives of the library at Yale. You know, one really compelling one to me, and this one gives me great comfort when I still doubt, is Simon Greenleaf. And if you're in the field of law, you'll know exactly who Simon Greenleaf is. Simon Greenleaf was one of the founding professors of Harvard law school, and he wrote what many attorneys today still believe to be the greatest work ever written by any legal scholar on taking historic 
evidences and making a strong case for whatever it is you're trying to make a strong case for. Now, one of the things that Greenleaf did as a professor at Harvard Law School was he would routinely mock Christianity in his classroom. He would refer specifically to the resurrection of Jesus as a ridiculous myth. And then some of his bright students also who identified as Christian said, prove it. Prove it. You are the smartest person in the world. If anybody can prove, anybody in the world can prove that Christianity isn't true because the resurrection never happened, it's you, and so prove it. And he said, okay, I'll do it. And in the process of trying to prove that the resurrection did not happen, he came to believe that the resurrection did happen and became a believer in Christ. Okay, so one thing you cannot say is Christianity is for stupid people. Okay, so I want to encourage you in the same way that Christians cannot say that atheists are stupid people. You can't do that. But you can't say that people who believe are stupid because you'd be writing off a lot of really bright-minded 1,600 on the SAT and 36 on the ACT kind of people. Many of them are in Nashville's scientific community today. So here's though, here's though what I think is the greatest evidence for Christianity is that the evidence is terrible if you're a first century person. And the fact that the evidence is terrible is what makes the evidence great. This story was so unlikely, especially to the first century person. So, so if, if you're going into a courtroom and you're a really good attorney, what you're going to do is you're going to downplay every bit of evidence that discredits your case. And you're going to possibly even exaggerate every bit of evidence that supports your case. And so, what's the evidence that this all happened and that Christianity is true? Jesus himself, from a town called Nazareth, which was this small town, not a breeding ground for movers and shakers and influencers by any stretch. Jesus also had no respected credentials. He was, he was a woodworker. He did not have higher education as most global influencers do. His net worth at any given time was zero. He entered the world outdoors among animals because his parents couldn't afford a room in which to, to you know, give him birth. And then he exited the world in his early 30s, uh, executed as an enemy of the Roman state. And we're saying that the hope of the world rests on this person's shoulders. Another case against Christianity that might also be the case for Christianity, is, is his written ancestry. And so, your resume in those times, it wasn't so much what you've done, what, you, what you've accomplished, or, or even where you went to, to school and got your education. What credentialed you was your ancestry. You came from so-and-so. You're, you're part of this family. It, it was a sort of social elite, generational thing. That, that, that validated you as a person of note and a person of worth in your community. And so, Jesus' ancestry is recorded in several of the Gospels. And the people who discredit the case for Jesus Christ are not downplayed at all. In fact, they're elevated. Some of those ancestors include Abraham, who was a terrible husband, Jacob, who was an habitual liar, Rahab, who was a prostitute, David, who abused his power as a king and committed adultery with his next-door neighbor and then murdered her husband in order to cover over the pregnancy that occurred. Solomon, who was a womanizer, 
Joseph and Mary, who were a couple of poor teenagers of no account, okay? So, so these are some of the people that are included in Jesus' resume. Then his social networks. You look at his disciples, and you see that most of them did not sit on boards. Most of them did not chair, you know, organizations or, or academic institutions. Most of them were discredited and disregarded in the community, including some prostitutes, some tax collectors who were despised by everybody, people with disabilities, people with special needs. These were, these were Jesus's inner ring people. These were his social network. And then in this text, his star witness, a woman named Mary Magdalene, who was publicly known as a crazy woman, possessed, the Bible tells us, with seven demons, and at one point Jesus is said to have cast seven demons out of her. Um, You know, she's like, you know, Jack Nicholson in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest kind of stuff. Like, 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 wow, I I don't want to get, I don't want to get close to that because it's scary. It's in the same way that, that, you know, those of us who've experienced anxiety and depression and other forms of mental illness, I'll put my hand up for that. We don't want to get close to it ourselves, like, because it's scary, right? To, to, to have that out-of-controlness, and yet she was a woman with an out-of-controlness about her. That's how she was known in the community, and yet she is selected as the very first person to witness the resurrection of Jesus Christ and then go tell other people, why her? Exactly, why her? She was a she. And this was a very patriarchal, paternalistic society back then, so much so that in a court of law, no woman's testimony would be allowed. A woman's testimony would be inadmissible in any court of law in that society, even if she had the best evidence that there was, because the men did not trust her gender. And so it's to this woman and a couple of other women that Jesus says, now go tell the disciples that he's risen. And who are the disciples? Thomas, who doubted, Peter, who betrayed him multiple times, all of them whom the Bible says fled in fear as Jesus was going to the cross. You know, C.S. Lewis, who's a former atheist, also a professor at Oxford University, says this, that Christianity has to be true because no human being would have ever invented it this way. It has to be true because nobody would have ever invented it this way. Now, here's the counter to all the evidence against. You have eyewitness claims from multiple people who say that they witnessed Jesus come up from the dead who were willing to die rather than recant that, including all of His twelve disciples except for Judas the betrayer and John who died of old age while in prison on a remote island not unlike Alcatraz. Okay, so the angel says to the women, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See, you know, appealing to their senses. See the place where they laid him and then go tell the others. There you will see him. You know, Second Peter chapter 1, one, one of Jesus' best friends says this, we did not follow cleverly invented myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses 
of His majesty. And then John, also a very close friend of Jesus, wrote, we heard Him with our ears, we saw Him with our eyes, we touched Him with our hands. The Apostle Paul, who was, who was staunchly against Jesus Christ, staunchly against Christianity, fiercely denied the resurrection, was an enemy of Christ and, and of Christ's followers, because of his testimony that he met the Lord Jesus Christ while he was walking on a road toward Damascus, the risen Christ appears to him, and he does a complete pivot. And he, he goes from becoming, you know, enemy number one to the Christian movement to ambassador number one for the Christian movement. And he's, he ended up writing about a third of the New Testament. And in one of those letters, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he writes to his audience you don't have to just take my word for it. There are still f- over 500 people. You all know exactly who they are. Five, over 500 people who will say the same thing that I have. That, uh, I'm saying to you that, that, that they saw the risen Christ. They witnessed him themselves with their own eyes, and they will give their lives for it. These people had nothing to gain and everything to lose by going public with their belief that Jesus Christ had come up from the dead. Because to to go public with that belief was to become an enemy of the state. Because in Rome, if you don't declare that Caesar is your premium first and foremost Lord, if, if you come in and say some resurrected poor guy is your Lord, you will be put to death. In the same way that over 100 people were put to death this very morning in Sri Lanka when bombs went off in church buildings and in hospitals, Christian hospitals, on Easter Sunday. They were willing not only to say it, but to give their lives for it. How likely is that? That that kind of consensus is built around something so risky. And then the the science question, before I get to the who should care question. It's a really important question because they're, they're really basically two ways that you, you, that you can account for the origin of everything. Uh, you can either go with, with Darwin's origin of the species and, and, and Darwin's evolutionary theory. Um, you know, in a very popular school of thought, especially in the world of science, where, you know, Darwin would say, and many in the scientific community, uh, as well as outside of the scientific community, would say that, that, that the best evidence is that the universe and all life forms happened without the involvement of a creator. And the universe is closed, and the universe as a closed universe is governed by laws that cannot be reversed, that cannot be contradicted. That's, that's the Darwinian theory of origins and such. And for those of us who are Christian, and I don't mean this in a snarky way, I, I mean this in a genuine way, we do not have a faith big enough to believe that. Our faith is too small to believe something so big and so miraculous that the universe created itself. We don't have a faith big enough to account for one human being, the fingerprints, the face, the nose, the earwax, the kidneys, the personality. We do not have a faith that is big enough to believe that it all happened. Maybe that's why Jesus called His followers, you of little faith, 
so much because it only takes a little faith. It only takes the faith the size of the smallest known seed of that time, a mustard seed, Jesus said, to move mountains. And, and according to us Christians, it only takes a small amount of faith, according to us, to believe that there is a big creative power that made it happen. We believe that the universe needs to have a first cause, a, a creator who's so great that he's not only to, able to say, let there be water, earth, and sky, and laws that govern it all, but also who is great enough as the creator of everything to suspend his own laws for a season if he chooses to do so, like the law of gravity or photosynthesis or oxygen or water, earth, and sky, or the law of death to suspend those laws, to show to us, to give evidence to us that He is there and that this is true, okay? So, I don't want to strong anybody, strong-arm anybody into believing or disbelieving anything. Those are, that's the best presentation of the evidence from both angles as I can offer, so it's up to you to make up your mind. But I want to I move away from an appeal to your intellect now to, to an appeal to your heart. This is especially toward those who would say that you have pain, that there is a place or several places in your life where you are hurting. So, so one of my friends who is a, a prominent leader in Nashville's scientific community, also a Christian, said something profound to me the other day. He says, I don't think that the stone was rolled away from the grave to let Jesus out. I think that the stone was rolled away in order to let us in. Because when you go in with Mary Magdalene and the other women, you're going to die with Christ as well. You're going to have to die. And for some, that means real death, like, like people in Sri Lanka this morning, for your faith like people in the first century, like 10 of the 12 disciples, you may actually be called upon to die for your belief in the resurrection. And then there are others, most likely most of us in the room, our death is chiefly and foremost to our own autonomy and to our own insistence that we are in control of our lives, that we are the captain of our destinies, you know, that we are the masters of our fate that we get to name our own identity. We have to relinquish that the moment we step foot in the tomb. Maybe that's why in verse 8 it says, when they encounter the angel of the Lord, they were afraid. Because when you realize that Jesus Christ is risen, that's great news, but it's also scary news because it means that he has claim on your life whether you acknowledge it or not. And one of these days you're going to have to acknowledge it. One of these days you're going to have to put the kneelers down. And you're either going to do that as a friend or you're going, to be, be, you're going to have to put the kneelers down as he confronts you as his enemy on the day of judgment. But every knee will bow. But for those of us who have pain, those of us who are wishing and wishing and wishing, please let this be true. For those of us willing to step into the tomb to see if it could be true, to share in Jesus' death, you also share in Jesus' life because the moment you step into the tomb, he sends you out alive as well. 
into a happily ever after story that is actually true. You know, C.S. Lewis says that someday you're going to be old enough to start reading fairy tales again. And I think what Lewis meant by that is eventually age catches up to us and we realize that we are not immortal. And we start to feel this, and I think this is why older people make it back into church later in life. In the same way that other, you know, crisis seasons, you know, a hard marriage, or you've had your first child and you have no idea how to handle it or what to do with it. That's a lot of times, or you're, you're feeling anxious and depressed. That's often the case, you know, th- those, those are often the kinds of things, or you get a diagnosis or something, that lead people back, maybe who've been away for a while. Someday you're going to be old enough. Someday you're going to be hurting enough to start reading fairy tales again, to start wishing that that maybe one of them is true and and, and that story can sweep you up into its story and give you hope and that happily ever after thing that seems to be eluding you right now. You know, Lewis said, look, I I became a Christian because I discovered that, that Christianity is a myth that is also a fact. It is the story in which all good story and in which all happily ever after gets swept up into. So, two kinds of hurting people, people who carry burdens and people who are living with regret. So, let me run through those before the the musicians and choir come back to close us out. First, people who carry burdens. Before she met Jesus, Mary Magdalene was a tortured woman, demon-possessed. Maybe that's not you but I suspect that you are probably haunted in some way, shape, or form by something, either by a present reality or something that you're afraid of that hasn't yet happened. What haunts you most? And and whatever that thing is that haunts you the most, have you to date discovered anything that will make it go away and will make it go away forever, that, that will lift off of you the burdens of whatever it is that haunts you, that will guarantee you a future free of them, whatever it is, whatever those things are that haunt you. Have you discovered that? Have you discovered anything to give you a moment of peace from that which haunts you that doesn't also numb you? See, because what the gospel and resurrection do is they make you more awake to your pain, not less awake. That's the difference. And more honest and more realistic about your pain. So, I'm going to ask for a show of hands, okay? So, I'm just going to bundle all this together. If you've ever seen evidence that the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes people, has worked for healing in that person's life or in your own life in ways that nothing else did or was able to, or if you know somebody who, because they went in with Jesus, You've witnessed more love, more joy, more peace, more patience, more kindness, more loyalty, more self-control, etc. in their life over time. Or if you've witnessed them being able to face suffering, pain, sorrow, bad news with more hope and less despair because of a direct result of their connection to Jesus Christ, will you raise your hand? If any of those are true, it's a lot of hands. A lot of hands went up on uh, in the early service here today as well. The greatest proof, perhaps, that the resurrection is true is that Jesus Christ changed lives, changes lives in ways that nothing else will. If you can't take it from the Bible yet, that's totally fine. Take it from Bono. 
Bono said this, either Jesus Christ was who he said he was, or he was a complete nutcase. But the idea that the entire course of civilization for over 50% of the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, for me, that is far-fetched. But Mary Magdalene, whom whom her whole community would have regarded her as a nutcase, she is sober-minded for the first time in her life. She is able to put one foot in front of the other for the first time in her life. She has friends for the first time in her life. And the event that that catalyzed those realities in her life was she met Jesus Christ. Here's some more unlikely evidence. I mean, who who would have thought that that, that so much of the world would say that the hope of the universe rests on on the shoulders of a first century man with no money, with no influence, with with ugly looking social connections, man of no reputation, lived as a refugee for part of his childhood, was born among animals, died on a trash heap, never spoke a word of English, and yet here we are in the United States of America, which didn't even exist back then. Here we are. Why'd you come here today? I'll tell you why I've come, because Christ is risen. That's what gets me up every morning. That's what keeps me from self-injury and despair and hating people. That's what keeps me from those things. You know that somewhere between two and three billion people today gathered around the world because of belief in the resurrection. Who would have thought? How unlikely is that? Nutcase? Probably not. Now, that's people who are carrying burdens. But then there are also those among us who are living with regret. The angel says to the woman, go tell his disciples. You know, people ask me sometimes, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? My favorite words in the Bible, there are two places. One is the place where it says that Jesus wept. Because those two words demonstrate Jesus' great compassion for hurting people. He entered into the grief of other people. The other two words are, and Peter. Okay, I'm going to tell you why. Go tell his disciples and tell Peter that Jesus who is risen is going to meet them in Galilee. Okay, so Mark who is writing this, um, this, this gospel is also Peter's protege. Mark is like a, the son that, 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 that Peter didn't have. And Peter is, or I'm sorry, Mark is relaying the gospel story as Peter told it. And and it's Peter who's saying to Mark, tell him that Jesus said, go tell the others, all of whom betrayed, and tell him Jesus also said, and Peter. Why is that significant? Is Peter a narcissist? No. Peter had so much shame when this encounter was happening. So much regret because Peter had been a serial betrayer of Jesus when Jesus needed friends the most. And yet after Jesus appears to him, we see a new courage emerge in Peter. He takes massive steps forward. He eventually, like Paul and all the other disciples, he he gives up his life for his faith and his belief in the resurrection. And yet along the way, He'll take three steps forward, and then he'll take two steps back, and then nine steps forward, and eight steps back, and then ten steps forward, and twenty steps back, and then a hundred steps forward. Fourteen years later, fourteen years after Christ has come up from the dead and 
Peter's gone out into the world healing people with diseases and preaching the gospel and seeing new churches born and everything else. Fourteen plus years later, the Apostle Paul writes in the book of Galatians in chapter 2, an incident where Peter lost sight of who he was again and out of cowardice again betrayed, but this time betraying people that Jesus loved, separating himself and, and going over here with popular opinion because he doesn't want to be associated with the parts of Christianity that, that are against popular opinion. And so he sides with a bunch of bullies and, 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 and he leaves behind a bunch of tender-hearted people that Jesus actually loves. Same Peter. What does this say? It says a lot of things. But one thing that it says is the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the best news you could ever hear for the erasure of your past wrongs and for the covering of your present and future ones as well. And Peter. You know, I got a text message. I was one of two recipients uh, of a text message just yesterday from a fellow, fellow pastor. There's, there's basically three of us. We're, we're pastors in different cities, and we encourage each other on a regular basis. We hit each other up with texts when, you know, we're, we're wanting to be honest, and, you know, we feel like, hey, this is a great place to share what I'm feeling. These guys will understand. We're kind of living the same thing, living the same dream, living the same nightmare, living the same glorious, you know, happy stuff, all the above. And so one of them texts the other two of us and says, is it just me, or, or do you fall apart every year right before Easter in some way, shape, or form? And he, he said, he said that, he said that, Uh, I'm having, last month was a Mary Magdalene month for me. I have dealt with extreme crippling anxiety for the last month. How are you guys? And then the other two of us chimed in, well, we've had more Peter experiences. And I chimed in, I like myself today, this was yesterday, I like myself today less than I've ever liked myself. And one of them responded back, can't we just all say to the Lord, we get it, God. You only use weak people, and we need to trust in you. Now you can leave us alone. <laughs> and then he goes on to write, I'm glad he doesn't leave us alone. I love you both. He is risen, even for, for us three blind mice. So I flipped to the back of my journal where I flip every single morning, top left corner, lists all of the sins that I am asking God every day to help me with. All of the betrayals, the, the repeat serial betrayals in my life that I'm asking God to, to help me with. On that list, envy, pride, discontent, control, anger, greed. Some of those have been on the list for over 31 years. Every single day, still, I'm not free from them completely yet. And Peter. And Peter. Some of you, you're tired of the world. Others of you, you're tired of yourself. You're, you're a blind mouse, just like me and my two friends. Did you realize you don't even live up to your own standards? Some of you, there are people in your life who have grown tired of you, and you are deeply discouraged by that because you feel stuck, and you feel shame around that. Here's the deal. Jesus Christ... It's the only one in the history of the world who won't tire of you because he can't. He can't. On Good Friday, he said, it is finished. Every bit of shame, every bit of contempt, every bit of condemnation that may or may not have been due to you, he took it. 
True guilt, false guilt. True shame, false shame. He took, uh, false shame. He took every bit of it. He will not tire of you because he cannot tire of you. And how do you know he's in your corner? You showed up. Like the women at the tomb, like the disciples in Galilee, you showed up after you failed. You're still here. You carried your baggage, you carried your regrets into this room today, maybe hoping to get a whiff of a resurrected Savior in a tomb that stinks no more. Christianity has nothing to offer to people who don't have problems and to people who don't have sins and failures and regrets. Christianity has nothing to offer. The stone was rolled away from the grave not to let Jesus out, but to let us in. The ticket price for entry, the cover charge, is empty hands and a soul that is thirsty for the undoing and unraveling of every single solitary negative verdict that you have carried, that you are carrying, or that you will carry. Happy Easter, friends. I hope to see many of you for the next six weeks, and after that, for the next 60 years, and after that, for infinite days. And Peter, let those words encourage you as we now stand and sing.